Well, there were some real struggles, no question about that. We encountered strong opposition in two of the three churches to our evangelical convictions, or just some who did not want to hear from the Bible or about sin or judgment. And then in 1984, we encountered my long ordeal with Guillain-Barre syndrome, this rare neurological condition. All, all in all, those days were good days, uh, in spite of the struggles, but the struggles were real. Welcome to the Small Town Summit podcast. We exist to encourage and equip small town pastors and lay leaders, really anyone serving Jesus in small places. I'm your host, Ben Whittinghill. And I'm Stephen Whitmer. Yes, and today we have such a privilege because Stephen has hijacked the podcast. Uh, we asked him to do it, he didn't steal it, but he did so to interview his dad, which I'm really excited for you to hear. This is fun, Ben. Thanks for, for uh, allowing me to do this. And uh, I hope it'll be helpful for those who are listening in. It was good for me um, to sit down with my dad and ask him some questions and maybe hear some things that I hadn't heard or hadn't heard in quite the same way before. And I was really struck by the fact that there are some real high highs in small town ministry. My dad experienced some great victories. But also just struck by the fact that you never really arrive and suffering never really ends. And my dad is still plugging away in small town ministry decades after he started. And uh, his story, I think, is the, the testimony of the faithfulness of God. I hope listeners will hear that. Yeah. Well, thanks, man, so much for stepping in and interviewing him. And we hope that you're blessed by Stephen's conversation with his dad. I'm thankful to Ben Whittinghill for allowing me to get behind the microphone uh, to do this interview. I just love listening to Ben interview folks for this podcast. Uh, but it's fun for me to be asking the questions uh, this time around uh, because I'm sitting here with one of the, well, probably the small town pastor I know the best and have learned the most from and have the greatest affection for my dad. And it's really fun to be able to, to just ask him some questions. And I think it'll be really helpful and beneficial for, for folks who are listening. So, Dad, I'd love for you to start just by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, maybe just give a quick overview of where you're from, where you live now, family members, um, pastoral, parachurch ministry over the past four decades, including what you're doing now. And then we'll come back and fill in the pieces as we go through the rest of the interview. But for now, maybe just uh, give us a, a brief overview. Well, Stephen, it's good to do this with you. I welcome the opportunity. I was born in 1951 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania. In 1969, I began attending what is today Eastern Mennonite University. I did not graduate from that school, but I attended there uh, in Harrisonburg, Virginia. It was our denominational school at the time. Uh, my church background is Mennonite. And then your mother, Mary, and I were married in 1973. So we have three grown sons, you and your twin brother, Andrew, and then our younger son, uh, Timothy. We've been blessed, greatly blessed, with nine wonderful grandchildren. Uh, in 1975, God, in a sort of a miraculous way, opened a wonderful opportunity for us to serve three small rural churches in north-central Maine. So I was a small town pastor for most of the next 30 years, uh, riding a circuit between three and then later two of those congregations for the majority of that time. 
1991, I founded the A2A Institute, a Christian apologetics ministry that reaches Maine, New England, and beyond. And so we're now in our 31st year with A2A, based in this little Northwoods village that's situated by the shores of Lake Hebron. Uh, we're just about 15 miles south of the larger, more noted Moosehead Lake, right in the center of the state of Maine. I, I always feel like when uh, we come back home, and we are at home in Monson recording this interview, uh, it is a sense of coming home, and it's just a fresh realization of how small and how remote this place is. And so I would say uh, you are through and through a small-town pastor. <laughs> Um, I, I'd love to go back to, you said you came from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Love to go back to that. How did you get from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania to these, uh, these remote places in Maine, these three, three churches you were pastoring in three different towns? Uh, was there a sense of call to this particular area or to the, the churches? How did the call from God come to you? Sure. I, I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were both very authentic in their faith, your grandparents. But I had to begin my own search for truth in the early 70s. And it was during that time that I just sort of set aside my professed Christian faith. I explored Buddhism, particularly some other world uh, views. And, uh, and especially I was into a philosophy called solipsism or radical solipsism. It was a very tough, confusing time for me. It was a lonely, that's a lonely worldview or philosophy, the thought that mind is the only thing that exists. But it was my attempt to build a unified explanation uh, for all of life on the basis of pure reason and, and rational thinking. At some point during that period, I was introduced to Dr. Francis, the late Dr. Francis Schaefer. Schaefer was an apologist, a thinker, a theologian, an author, very well noted at that time still. I think today many people know that name. He had founded this little community in the Swiss Alps and people from all over the world with many varied backgrounds and religious convictions who wanted to give thought and priority in their search for truth uh, migrated to this little village in, in Waymo uh, up in the villa, in the province of Olone in Switzerland. So I spent a short term of study there. And, and then over, I came back after having met with Schaefer a couple of times individually. This was before he was a household name. But I think later Time magazine referred to him as a missionary to the intellectuals. Uh, our, our visits and my study there at Labrie was determinative. I remember Oz Guinness enrolled me in the study, and, and uh, he was hardly known at that time, but um, he was part of the Labrie team. And then when I gave, got back to the States, and over the course of the next year, I continued to think and read, and uh, we had a trip to the West Coast. Another guy and I spent some time in communes at the height of the Jesus People movement. I spent one winter in the northern remote regions of Alberta, Canada. And in thinking through all of this, there came a time when I began to uncover some flaws in my own rational thinking. And, and so that uh, helped me to get away from solipsism. And I, in the process, 
became convinced that there was more and better evidence for the Christian worldview than for any other worldview or in, even in history. So long story short, I came back to Jesus. I began praying again. I got involved in a local church in Christiana, Pennsylvania. Uh, there was a pastor there who took me under his wing, believed in me. He gave me many increasing ministry opportunities over the next year or two. And then after that, this uh, amazing pastoral opportunity in Maine opened up. So how did it open up? You're asking, how did I sense God's call? I think it was a combination of things, almost everything that you just mentioned. Uh, God had put within me a, a growing desire to share his truth with those who needed to hear it. Uh, Lancaster in that, at that time, maybe still today, is sort of a Bible belt of sorts. So almost everyone I knew, all of my associates had at least, all, all of my um, people my age had at least heard the gospel or were familiar with it. When we came to Maine, I still clearly remember there were boys and girls, young people, and even older people who had never really heard the gospel and were, were illiterate, biblically, totally. And so uh, in addition to all of that, he also had long since, even when I was a teenager, given me a love for cold climates and remote places. Uh, so I pushed on a few doors that fit that criteria, and he took it from there. So I think it, it involves some of my own inclinations. It certainly involved counsel from other godly men. Two men, in particular a pastor and a bishop in the Mennonite church at that time, actually got in the back of the little Dodge Colt that Mary and I owned, that you know, your mother and I, and they, and they traveled with us to Maine to explore the, the possibilities of ministry here. So that was part of the process. Uh, there was also one remarkable sign, I would, I would call it a sign, uh, sort of a miraculous sign along the way. We've never talked a lot about that publicly, but it did serve as a real confirmation in and of itself. It was not determinative of his call, but it confirmed the fact that God wanted us to be in Maine. And so this is where we ended up in the fall of 1975. How, how, how significant for you was that? that clarity of call to did you come back to that in the years after that when when things were hard was that important to you that you had a, a clear sense of call oh i think so i mean i remember especially after i was ordained in 1979 by a vicinage council here and later recognized by the evangelical free church that i would look at that certificate at times and say all of these men bore witness to the fact that I've been called and ordained by God. So uh, looking at their signatures and that, that certificate plaque on my wall was an anchor. It confirmed what I had already sensed. Yeah, I, I felt the same thing. We, we have, uh, I, I think God very clearly called us to Pepperell. And there have been numerous times when ministry has been hard and I can look back on that period of time and remember counsel from various people. And just the, the sense of, yes, God definitely called us here. And so that, and that's been a consolation and kind of a, a net uh, a support uh, under, under our feet when things have been tough. Right. Yeah. You need those times when you, you continue to claim in the dark what you've known to be true in the day. Yeah. You know, I was also just thinking about... Um, as you were talking about how God was bringing you out of uh, other worldviews and uh, the a time of drifting away from Him, 
back into relationship with him, that huge grace that he was pouring out upon you in that, that period of your life, but also upon me mm-hmm. and, uh, and my children. That's right. And uh, Lord willing, their children. It's incredible just uh, the generational grace that God was showing us. And that, I mean, I, I don't know where I would be if uh, in that period of your life God hadn't drawn you back to his son yeah, well god looks down through the corridors of time and he, he knows the future and that was all in his plan yeah you know i i know those early those early years of ministry involved some struggle you've you've talked about that over the years and um, I, I wonder uh, how much of that struggle was related to being in a remote place or in small towns did you feel lonely sometimes did you ever struggle with uh with being kind of on the periphery or, or a sense of does what I'm doing count because my church is smaller? Like I, I was talking to someone the other day who said they were talking to a pastor who said, no, that's never crossed my mind. I, I was just I was just a pastor. You know, I, I didn't feel like it was less than. But I, I know some of us have struggled with that. Like, was that a struggle for you? Lack of resources or kind of being out on the edge of things? Well, there were some real struggles, no question about that. We encountered strong opposition in two of the three churches to our evangelical convictions and, and teaching. That, that was a huge thing. Um, it, it really sort of erupted after we arrived. There were, there were just some who did not want to hear from the Bible or about born-again theology and sin or judgment. Uh, that was not part of the message preceding our time here and and they opposed that and then in 1984 we encountered my long ordeal with Guillain-Barre syndrome this rare neurological condition it's an autoimmunological condition that afflicts about one in a hundred thousand people it ended up with me in the hospital eight months in intensive care for five months and still in a wheelchair to this day so that was all part of that that's the story in those early years uh, beginning in 1984. Uh, again, in the early years, money was tight. My initial salary, believe it or not, was less than 5000 a year. <laughs> that wow. was it. Uh, they provided us with a parsonage, and, um, and they, I think they gave us some benefits or helped us with utilities, but in terms of salary, it was about $4,500 a year. That was in 1975, so it went a little further then than now, but it wasn't much. Uh, we missed being closer to some cultural influences. Um, we used to joke about yogurt being the only living active culture anywhere within 100 miles of Monson. But actually, we loved the remoteness and the smallness. That was, for me, that was part of what attracted us here. And I think back on it as a whole as good days. Uh, at times, I had wished for a mentor, I wished that there was some older, godly, man who would pray with me and for me. Uh, That never really happened. There were one or two that came alongside for a while. But I I found other older guys that were in our pastor's fellowship that I looked up to and still remember. So all all in all, those days were good days um, in spite of the struggles. But the struggles were real. It it doesn't seem, though, as though you felt uh, kind of a, a sense of jealousy or envy toward pastors who were in the bigger cities or more connected with each other i felt sorry for them really yeah (laughs) i was where i wanted to be yeah okay that's great i was hoping god didn't change and call me at some point to an urban ministry okay i love that (laughs) 
Uh, one of the other things that's really interested me is to think through the path that my two brothers and I have taken. So we all grew up in Monson, population 700 or so. Uh, all of us went off to college. Uh, some of us lived in cities. Uh, my brother Andrew still lives in a city, uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, Tim, my younger brother, lives in an even more remote section of Maine, up north on the, the Maine Canada border. So he's in a very small town. I'm in a small town. Uh, so two, that means two of the three of us are living in small towns. Both Andrew and I have, have really become interested in thinking and writing about small towns. I wrote a book on small town ministry. Andrew is an academic historian. He's, he's written a hist- an academic history of our hometown, Monson, mm-hmm. that's going to be published in 2022 right. by an academic press. And it's just been very interesting to me to think, okay, there were seeds planted in us by growing up in Monson, in your home, mom's home. And uh, those seeds, I think, have kind of been blooming, especially over the past several years. Uh, what, What were the challenges of parenting kids in a small town, were there things that you were like self-consciously doing right. to help us to appreciate our place or to to grow in a sense of the significance of a place like Monson? Yeah. Well, in a larger sense, God was just gracious to us with you and your brothers. Uh, because of Guillain Beret, I couldn't go out and throw frisbee with you guys or hike mountains with you. But you've all grown up to love and serve Jesus, so we're very blessed in that respect. Uh, but there were limitations, no question. Uh, we, we often were concerned that there was no vibrant youth fellowship. Uh, you know, there were four or five other teenagers when you were growing up in our little church, so you didn't have some of those resources and things happening and influences. Uh, but on the other hand, there were no negative big city influences or crime or drugs. Uh, you and Andrew, as twin brothers, had each other so I think you leaned on each other and a few other good, wholesome friends. Some were not Christians, but they were good, wholesome kids. And, and then you had your Bible club, and that was a, that was a big plus uh, and a comfort to us because you had 20, 25 kids or so that were pretty much on fire for their faith and met at the public school. Uh, Tim, our younger son, probably your brother, had a greater challenge, no doubt. But by that time, he and I had developed a sort of unique bond, I think maybe due to my GBS limitations. Um, Your mother and I, our our faith was genuine. I can say that. I know that you would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Our our private spiritual commitment to Jesus was authentic, not just a show. And I think that makes a huge difference. Kids can smell someone being disingenuous. Disingenuous, thanks. For that, um, but I enjoyed my work. Uh, for many of your growing up years, our tensions were with those who opposed the gospel, rather than being the result of internal church relations. We had some of that in later years, but I think during the time that you were home, I had a good relationship, and uh, there were good friendships among our church leaders, and it was a positive experience. So uh, maybe that could, maybe that translated to you. You, you know, I was enjoying my work. Mm-hmm. And um, probably that filtered down to your feelings about ministry, I wouldn't doubt. Yeah, I've actually thought about this uh, a decent amount. Um, what were the things that you and Mom did that 
helped us, uh, even maybe things you didn't say in particular, but things that you were modeling for us. And uh, I think one of those things was you, you two always seem to have um, a desire to include folks who were more on the, on the, on the periphery uh, or maybe who were struggling. So we grew up um, on Monday, I think it was Monday evenings, was it? We had a, right. a guy named Phil Flint to our house for, uh, for, for supper uh, on Monday evenings. And he was a bachelor and, uh, and some, had some struggles in life and uh, was definitely not a mover or a shaker. And, uh, and it, what, you, weren't, you weren't having him over to our house so that he could pay you back or do something for you. And uh, I, I just always remember Thanksgiving dinners, uh, you kind of, you know, in my later teens or, or after, even after I would be coming home from college, you guys just tended to collect folks who didn't have somewhere else to go. And I, that really modeled significantly for us what it means to care about folks who, who aren't influential or who aren't going to pay you back in some way. You're not doing it for that reason. Uh, you're doing it because you want to love them, and uh, and I that 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 I really I think helped me that formed me. Um, uh, I that that was very significant in um, and I think as well you 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 talked about just you and mom both have a genuine faith. So I remember seeing you praying, reading your Bible. Um, I've often thought that in terms of preparing for ministry in Pepperell, I think growing up in Monson was about as uh, helpful and influential as doing all my graduate study because I wanted I, I clearly I needed to know the Bible be able to teach and preach the Bible but I also need to be able to know how to relate to to folks who are normal you know non non influencers or, or, or you know, folks who aren't gonna go radically change the culture and so just being around uh, folks in Maine and having folks into our home and seeing you guys reach out to them that way was was hugely significant for us, for me. Right. Yep. Uh, one of, one of the guests on on the Small Town Summit podcast recently was uh, an English church planter called John Hindley, and I remember uh, one of the things that was noteworthy about that interview is uh, he he joked about uh, in the first few years of his church planting, he said he grew the church from thirteen people to ten people. Mm-hmm. Or something, something of that effect. And um, I know ministry in Monson has been difficult uh, sometimes over the years. The church is smaller now, maybe than it's ever been. It's smaller now, certainly than it was 25 years ago. Right. Um, and I, I think a lot of that's because the town has been shrinking. So when the town is shrinking, when the the furniture mill closes down that employs a quarter to a third of the town, mm-hmm. and the school closes and families are moving away. I mean, how do you grow a church? And for you personally, I'd love to hear just what some of the emotional, spiritual challenges of ministering for years in a place that's shrinking, in a church that's not seeing a lot of new folks, in a church that's losing uh, membership because older folks are passing away. What, what, what have been the challenges of, of that for you personally? And how do you find strength and hope in the Lord? And even what are some of the, the practical things you've done uh, in order just to keep the doors open? Yeah. Well, the churches were not doing well when we arrived, but by God's grace, uh, there was a sort of a revival of sorts, I think, during our first 20 years. It was an exciting time. People were coming 
to the Lord, we baptized hundreds of people over the first 20 years. And um, one year we baptized 38 people. So in, in um, contrast with all of that, seeing things reverse after, as you said, Moosehead Furniture closed and, and uh, things started to shut down, the elementary school moved out of town. So seeing the town and the church decline over the past 20 years has been very hard, no question. Uh, just last year, we were unable to continue paying the pastor of this Monson Community Evangelical Free Church here in Monson. So he's no longer with us. Uh, while he was here, I was content to sit in the back row, uh, and now I've had to go up front again, and that's hard. I've been working very hard voluntarily, but over time to get us stabilized financially in the last year and with a core of believers uh, I've initiated some changes in our worship order. We've arranged for the pastor of the church eight miles to our south to live in our parsonage at no cost and then to preach for us at no cost. So that was a creative arrangement that we worked out. I don't know if that would work for others, but maybe so. Uh, he, he doesn't pay us anything to live in our parsonage. We don't pay him anything to preach, but it seems like a good arrangement for the Abbott Church for, for him and for us. But all through this, of course, COVID has really complicated things. And uh, finding competent tradesmen in our rural area to maintain the big church building and finding the funding to pay these guys, even if we can find them, has been probably the biggest challenge. That may surprise you or others to know, but finding good, available, competent tradesmen and paying them uh, finances may be more common, but it's just been hard every day. I mean, every week. These are issues that are always constantly on my mind these days, even while I'm working full-time with the apologetics ministry, and they're quite draining. And that's going on right now. I, I'm not praising God for bringing me through that time. I'm sure he will, but uh, that's, a, that's a present struggle. But the bottom line is we have not accepted the idea that God wants our steeple to go dark or the gospel light here in this little town to be extinguished. So as long as Mary and I have health and breath, as long as he allows us to get up in the morning, we're going to try to march forward. I don't mean to say that it's all drudgery. Uh, maybe I'm being too negative. We love life. We love our small group of believers. Uh, they're, they have a good spirit, and we still laugh. Uh, I'll just tell you a very brief story, but this happened just two days ago. In our Bible study, we were in the last chapter of Revelation, the series that I was teaching, and we came on uh, that last text in Revelation 22, where John, the revelator, ends by saying, even so come Lord Jesus. And I was mentioning to the group that early believers in the first century would sometimes use the term Maranatha to sum that idea up, even so come Lord Jesus. So I said, Whenever I see you from now on, we've gone through this 22-chapter study. If I say Maranatha to you, you can say Maranatha to me, and we'll both know what we mean. And one lady said, Darrell, I'm not too good with big words. I'm afraid if you say Maranatha to me, I'm going to get mixed up and say marijuana back to you. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we have good times and we have laughs, but that's a true story. Yeah, I, I had not heard about that 38 people baptized in one year. One That's year. incredible. I mean, that, that really is revival in tiny, tiny towns in Maine. 
Three churches. Uh, yeah, in three churches. I mean, that's incredible. I've never come close to baptizing 38 people a year in our church. Did, have you ever struggled with uh, a sense of uh, failure or discouragement that that was happening all those years ago and you're not seeing that now? Oh, sure. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to see the town and the church in decline. Um, you know, we've been in this town for 46 years. So most people know the message, the gospel. They've heard me preach it at funerals. Even if they don't come to church, they've walked into the church for a funeral and heard the gospel and pretty much staked their position. But we still try to be creative in, in reaching out. I've written a letter, an open letter to the whole town that we put in every single mailbox a year ago. And so people still, I mean, we still find ways to communicate the gospel but absolutely, there's a struggle. I, I do pray for our town regularly that God would create a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But, but we try to find a balance, you know, by just remaining positive and doing what we can do and leaving the results with God. Yeah, I was blown away by that letter you, you wrote a, a year or so ago to every person in our town. I, and, and I think, you know, probably one of the, tr one of the struggles could be you feel sort of like, well, you've said your piece, uh, you know, 15 years ago. Most people in town already know where you stand. And so then they've already said no or just ignored it or been apathetic. So how do you keep going and how do you keep reaching out? And, you know, I, just, just the way I think probably a lot of folks, once they've been shared, once they've shared the gospel with their family 10 times, and they've, it's been rejected or ignored, feel like, well, should I, can I keep on doing it the 11th time or the 12th time? You know, right. that, that can be a challenge, I think, in small town ministry where you, you feel like, well, Monson already knows where I stand. But so I just res respect the fact that you continue to think of creative ways to reach out and, and make Jesus known. And you and mom both are, are that way. Maybe one or two more questions. I, I can think of a couple groups of listeners to this podcast and i'd love to have you address them just briefly so younger men who are starting out in pastoral ministry maybe in a small place and and what would you say to just to uh, warn them or direct them away from pitfalls to encourage them in the years ahead um, and also maybe some pastors who are years into ministry uh, maybe they're struggling with discouragement um, they're they're not sure that what they're doing counts for very much what would you say to them to keep them going? I'll be short, and I'll be to the point on this one, Stephen. God blessed me with an amazing wife who has been a thousand percent behind me, very steady, very positive in her support of me, both in the demands of pastoral ministry during those years and, uh, and also with my physical disability. She's just been there. And that is the biggest part of the deal for me and I think for others, a supportive partner. Uh, so perhaps I ought to be making this point to the wives of the, the men in the two groups you just cited, or, or maybe you and Emma should interview your mother. But when a husband and a wife are in sync with each other, you've got a team that can weather a lot of tough storms. And, and where that's not the case, I would think that it's probably almost impossible uh, there are other factors, but I'll just mention that for now because that's the key. Yeah, I can testify that uh, just from watching you, you two up close that for years and years, mom has been an incredible support and 
right there with you. And people love her, and she has a deep ministry to people in our town. Uh, one, one other question that we'll do, just a kind of a final, any, anything you would want to share with folks. But uh, I want to think about just uh, bivocational ministry as well, because I know a number of our listeners are bivocational. Uh, for years, you pastored three churches in a parish, and that was able to support you full-time. And then two of those churches grew, called their own full-time pastors. And so you were part-time with the church in Monson. They couldn't provide a full-time salary. And it was at that time that you went part-time with Areopagus to America, the apologetics ministry that you lead. And then I know over time, A2A came to a place where they could support you full-time. And so Monson, the Monson Church hired a, a part-time pastor. Um, but... Uh, so for you, you've been bivocational for, I think, about 20, 25 years or so, or you were. Um, were there advantages to that? Were there, I mean, So I, I know, you know, bivocational ministry, sometimes bivocational pastors will be a pastor part-time in ministry, and then maybe they'll be driving a school bus or right. working carpentry. You weren't doing that. You were in ministry That's in right. both of your vocations. But yeah. uh, was there was there an advantage to that for you? Yeah. Well, there were about 10 years in there from 1991 to maybe 2001, 2002, on, on through to 2004 when the young fellow who took the reins from me in the Monson Church was fully established and installed as, as full-time pastor. Uh, and I was working both ministries, and, and it was a blur. I, don't, I frankly don't remember many of the details. Those were, those were busy years. You and your brothers were both in high school. Uh, we were endlessly doing, seemed endlessly doing FAFSA forms at that point. Uh, A2A couldn't pay our salary early on, so the finances were tight. I was dealing with paralysis. And, and as always, when you're divided between whether it's two ministries or another kind of vocation, in addition to ministry, it divides your creative thinking uh, because you're trying to think ahead to the next day and what comes next. So, you know, to be honest, I actually don't recall a lot of advantages of being bivocational. I'm not sure there are many benefits. Uh, I suppose that depending on what the other job involves, it might provide an opportunity to get out of the church and mix with those who don't know Christ. I think that would be a good thing because we're often secluded in our ecclesiastical uh, conclaves and don't mix with others who don't share our beliefs. So that might be an advantage. Uh, it, it possibly would provide some advantageous ground for exhorting the church to be selfless in stewardship, you know, like Paul, who when he was a tent maker, he, he was basically saying no one can say that I've got a selfish interest in talking about money and giving because it's not for my benefit. And I, I think you could do that maybe better as a bivocational minister. But other than that, I just don't know that there are a lot of advantages. But we have to do what we have to do, right? And God meets us there, and he provides a way, and that's the way it worked for us. Those days eventually passed. Uh, he's the same God now as then, so I'm confident that it can work for others and any who are listening to this podcast. Yeah, I, I actually see I wonder if I, I might see some more advantages to it than, than you do even, because I feel like uh, part of your ministry in A2A— um, as it's it's a national ministry, but it's really more regional. I think it's more focused on New England, and you've always had a heart to go into small churches and uh, do apologetics and do apologetics training in churches 
that you know they they wouldn't be able to get a a, a national speaker like they would you know they couldn't afford to bring Lee Strobel in. That's right. And I think you were able, you had a heart to go into churches like that, and you had an ability to speak to normal people in small churches throughout New England because you were pastoring uh, small town churches with ordinary people. So because you were doing that uh, daily pastoral ministry, I think that was that was honing your ability to speak at a level that was going to be actually helpful, fruitful, beneficial. So I can see your your local ministry serving your regional ministry, and then also your regional ministry serving your local ministry because you were you were able to connect with other people and be challenged and read books uh, as part of the apologetics training that you were doing. That were also that was also then going to be fruitful in serving here in Monson and, and serving people in the church. Right. So yeah, even even though both of your vocations were ministry, I can see them. Mm-hmm. One informing and, and flavoring and helping serving the other. Sure. Um, well, just a, a last question. Any any final words of encouragement or exhortation for folks who are listening, who are doing small or maybe thinking about doing small town ministry? Right. Well, I'll, I'll end by saying I, I welcome the opportunity to share this with you, and your words have been pretty affirming and kind today. The truth is, if I had it to do over, there would be many changes that I would make. I don't feel that we did all that we could have done. We did some things we shouldn't have done. And, and there were moments of real discouragement, so it wasn't as easy as it may sound. But if I was to uh, share some encouragement or counsel, I would say, you know, number one, choose your battles carefully. If you get locked into conflict with your leadership, be sure that it's over things that really matter whether that's in a large church or a small church, uh, when, it, when it is over something that really matters and, and yet someone's stubbornly opposing you, remember that time is usually on the side of the pastor. I, I heard that early on in my ministry and that really helped me to be patient sometimes. I, I'm a get-or-done kind of guy. I would see where I wanted to go. I'd know where I am and I'd try to cut a short route to that, that goal. And sometimes... Um, Things got damaged along the way unnecessarily. But time is usually on the pastor's side. I believe that. <clears throat> and the, the converse of this encouragement in small town uh, summits, some town, small town ministry, I think is that we can't always automatically assume that it's always God's will for every pastor to stay on and on in a given work. So there may be occasions when it's time for someone to move on. Every case is different. Uh, perseverance is usually a very good thing. Selfish bullheadedness isn't. But all things being equal, I think just focus on the thing, focus on the long term, uh, in a small church particularly, probably. Keep the big picture in mind. Listen to people carefully. Don't measure the value of what you're doing by standards that equate size and numbers with significance. Better to be a small, faithful church than a large, compromised church. Um, be personal with your leaders. Be as close to them as possible. Be real with your people before God. And be real with God before your people. Uh, I'll just end by this little... You, you may have seen this, Stephen, or used it with others, but uh, years ago I came across this little verse by Ray Stedman. 
he, he calls it No Little Places. And I don't know whether he wrote this, but he's the one that I saw that had included it in something that he had written. So I'll just share this. He says, um, Father, where shall I work today? And my love flowed warm and free. He pointed out a tiny spot and said, tend that place for me. I answered him quickly, oh no, not that, why no one would ever see, no matter how well my work was done, not, not that little place for me. The word he spoke then wasn't stern, he answered me tenderly, Nazareth was a little place, and so was Galilee. So faithful is he who called you, and he also will bring it to pass. And thanks, Dad. The, the counsel you just offered, I've seen you live out for the past 45 years, so um, I know that you mean it, and you're not just giving it away to others. You've, you've lived by that truth yourself, and you've had a fruitful ministry and influenced people uh, deeply in the town of Monson and, um, and continue to. Um, I love the fact that there's still a gospel presence on Main Street in Monson after all these years, and I pray it'll, it'll continue on till the Lord returns. So thank you. Thanks so much for your faithfulness, and thanks for being willing to, to talk today. Good to be with you, Steve. It is always moving to me to see God's faithfulness from one generation to another, and I'd like to thank Mr. Daryl Whitmer for his faithfulness, and as Stephen was marveling at the grace of God uh, at work in his dad and seeing the benefit that he got from that downstream, I couldn't help but think about the benefit that we all experience from that too, uh, even just through Stephen's friendship and ministry and his impact through small town summits. So let's rejoice afresh in the faithfulness of God and see the importance of all these little moments of faithfulness, all these uh, little moments of God extending his grace and his kindness to us. May he continue to do it in our families to a thousand generations and also in the places where he has us. Some years, uh, by God's grace, may we baptize 38 people and then be faithful in the years when we are praying and watering with tears. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Until next time.